We have to grasp that the biosphere is an absolute boundary that limits our behaviour. Then you say, okay, well, how do you get that biosphere imperative to made real in the practical functioning of humans? Put it into every constitution. Having got that in, then that's when change starts to happen, when action starts to happen. Hello. And welcome to the second series of the Hidden Power podcast called Pre-Flight Checklist. It's a useful analogy which we are using to think about getting the best out of our little lives on Spaceship Earth, using something that profoundly impacts our lives, but none of us ever really see, a constitution. In this series, we explore one by one each of the 26 principles that would govern a pleasant life through and at the far side of the current climate emergency. I'm Philip Tottenham, and my co-presenter is the author of these principles, Ed Straw. Principle number 19. Beneficial change most often results from working with the affected population through the medium of STIP, or systems thinking in practice. Right. So... It's interesting, in a sense, how little we've talked about STIP in previous episodes, because really, it's very much the thrust of all of our conversations. But just to quickly break down this principle, beneficial change alludes to a previous principle that the purpose of government is to bring about beneficial change. It may seem obvious, but it's not always uh, what happens in practice. And often, governments relate to affected populations affected by one thing or another, whether it's a housing crisis or heroin epidemic or whatever it may be. The medium of STIP, well, we're talking about systems thinking in practice. Again, we're talking about first and second order cybernetics. So that's the systems of things feeding back and and changing as they evolve. But then also the uh, human aspect of that, which is people feeding back to each other and evolving their, their culture. And that's particularly where the in-practice bit comes. So this word praxis, theory-informed practice. So you can do plenty of systems thinking at a desk. You then take it out to wherever it may be, to the affected population, and you start applying it. And then you find in practice that with this particular group of people and this particular place that in practice things may turn out to be a bit different so this is precisely where its applicability has been taken up by the un the who and the oecd who are dealing with these incredibly as they would say wickedly complex global issues that Mm. have many and various local impacts and and perspectives yeah. And for me, you know, a part of this whole series is, you know, the real hope is that such a, a global interest in systems thinking potentially serves to alleviate the problems that we're seeing this week, for example, in Canada with severe heat waves and all the other things that we know about with regards to global climate change and biodiversity loss. And it's just interesting quickly to refer back to the skull competition on systems mapping and the entries from around the world. And if I just read out a few of them, um, you've got the youth suicide crisis in India, poor plastic waste in Accra, Ghana, 
Type 2 diabetes in Latino American communities, menstrual inequities, problems with women-owned business in South Africa, adolescent pregnancy in Peru, youth homelessness in Vancouver, uh, fake news on WhatsApp and female genital right. So these are, these are familiar themes in various mm. places. And then you think about all of that and you think, well, actually, most of those problems are occurring in most places in the world. And But why aren't we sharing the learnings from those around the world? But this, I mean, this is a lot to do with what we experience in terms of governance, isn't it? That, as you've often said, and I think you're right, that we expect a messiah to come and deliver us from our problems. And what we end up with is governments being overwhelmed, firefighting, mainly placating voters. And in fact, this came up when we talked to Perret Tonyarist, Dr. Perret Tonyarist, on the sense of powerlessness at the heart of government uh, back in series one. But then another aspect is this kind of chain of difficulties where you get this excessive concentration of power with a very few people, as you described, the tiny top, mm. and the, the almost inevitable resulting lack of attention. And mm. this lack of attention, obviously, you've got no time, the problem comes up, you need to deal with it, oh, get rid of it. You know, so there's a shadow fix rather than any uh, profound mm. or systemic thoughtful engagement and what we end up with are these sort of power players these ministers who are running around sort of offering tokens of appeasement to mm. voters and then as we said in the previous episode you know they they pass the law or whatever it is and then they run away onto the next thing so nothing's yeah. really engaged with and dealt with and yeah. of course it can't be because the whole thing's poorly envisaged but the net result is that we have populations who feel appeased implicated and therefore disenfranchised, where yeah. the whole thrust and logic of STIP, like the whole idea in a sense of using systems thinking and practice, is using this first and second order cybernetics. So the systems that give you data that is then acted upon, and people engaged in a conversation that is responsive to what's going on, which in turn creates ownership and flourishing in communities and on the ground where these affected populations need problems alleviated. And this in turn has been shown in many or even all instances to create these incredibly vibrant, capable communities of which there are many examples. And I think we'll see those examples as we go forward. So let's jump from those. Normally we talk about the context and we talk, we break down the principle, but let's just get straight to what STIP is all about and how it works. So with an affected population, what's the problem? And then what are we talking about? Because often a problem for one person can be a very comfortable status quo for somebody else. Whose reality are we talking about here? And indeed, you know, getting away from the philosophy of what is reality, which is often abstruse and irrelevant to daily life, these framings of reality uh, essential to, to the problem. And then we're going to talk about what solutions in these contexts actually amount to. And that's, I think, probably the most interesting bit, which we'll keep mm. to the end. So firstly, when you have yeah. a problem, what, so, what are we talking about? Yeah, okay. So, you know, step one, given that we're talking about a purpose is to create beneficial change, we don't call them problems we call them situations of concern. And there are several reasons for that. You know, if you jump into the problem, 
as you say, well, one person's problem is another person's comfort. So a situation of concerns, in a way, depersonalizes it. It takes the judgment out. It says, you know, here we are, we've got a situation, maybe water supply, maybe hospitals, it may be a library, whatever. We've got a situation of concern, which we feel could be moved on and some beneficial change produced if we have a look at it. So let's have a look at it. So then, well, what is it? What's the boundary that we're drawing around this? Well, I mean, this is where you're you're really trying to establish what the entity that you're talking about is in its completeness and in a sense what is not the entity what's what's relevant and what's not relevant and of course in some respects the more narrowly you draw it then almost certainly you'll be missing out some levers and and opportunities for change and you'll certainly be missing out some obstacles to change which will probably uh, prevent you doing anything in practice so the boundary needs to be quite wide. But of course, if you, you know, then turn around and say, well, in practice, you know, if we look at water, well, it's connected to everything. So we're going to look at the world. Well, then the boundary is getting a bit big. Well, um, I think we talked about this in the beginning of the first series where there was talk of a sea war. Was it in Sheldon? It was originally to do with sea level rise. But then this groundwater element came into it. And that, as you said at the time, sort of extended the boundary of what they were, in fact, interested in and talking about. It's a very good example. So there's flooding, initially drawn narrowly. And then someone said, well, you know, we also get flooding from sewers overflowing. And indeed, we get flooding from further up the estuary. So probably a good idea if we look at this lot in the round. And Mm. so they looked at this because if you don't, yeah, you sort out the sea rise flooding, Mm. but you're still getting flooded. So is that beneficial change? And then that presumably introduced a whole fresh array of stakeholders, of people who had an interest in what was going to be potentially done. Yeah, it's exactly so. I mean, in a way, sea rises are are sort of quite external. You know, we're just trying to keep this thing out from Mm. the population. And indeed, remembering that that population included a primary school, which happened to be in a bowl, which if it did get flooded, then it would go over the top of the primary (laughs) school. So, you know, quite important stuff. So you then extend it and you talk about the flooding that's coming from the sewers, and the drains. And as you say, suddenly you've got the shopkeeper whose shop gets flooded. You, well, you've got the school, certainly you've got houses, you've got roads getting blocked and so on. And but so then forth. And with, as with Tynmouth, when, when they just sort of went in with a solution saying we're going to put a seawall, all these stakeholders were up in arms because they were like, well, hang on a second, how are we going to get our fishing fleet in and out of the harbour? You know, I've bought a house with a view. What are you going, you're putting this wall in front of me. Yeah. And I mean, that's another one of the points about STIP is that you need to get the stakeholders. I know it's an overused term, but you need to get the stakeholders involved who have not only legitimate interests, but they have knowledge 
because mm. the Environment Agency in this case did not have all of the knowledge about what was going on and which particular... Or any of the local knowledge, presumably. But, and, and that local knowledge is incredibly important. So, but this, this yeah. brings us quite neatly into the next sort of thought, because another river basin that I noticed in the book, there's this great systems map, which then takes all those different, not just the different stakeholders, but all the different entities around this huge river basin. I seem to remember that there are about 16 different groupings of five to, in some cases, 25 institutions, strategies, laws. We've talked before about systems mapping, but it only really struck me how useful it was to have a visual, a single visual representation where you can just try and get an inkling of what the complexities of what you're dealing with. Yeah, and so so there you are. There's the, uh, the Gulborne Broken River Catchment in Australia. You've got a catchment management authority. There you are, catchment management authority. Off you go and get on with this. Well, if you then look at state government, federal government, state ministries, international agencies, co-investors, industry support, research mm. and education, knowledge, industry associations, regional partnerships, next door, I mean, uh, an absolute plethora of groups and and interested, uh, even projects and laws and strategies. I mean, it was so good at laying all that out. And the form of those, the responsibilities, the authorities, the influences. And and suddenly you can't just say to the catchment management authority, there you are, off you go and sort it out. They're in the middle of this extraordinary complexity. Mm. And then that brings us straight into, okay, we now understand this level of complexity. That brings us to governance. So how is this entity, this river basin, to be governed? How can we set up? um, Of course, and then immediately you're into politics, aren't you? You're into, into potential power plays, which would be completely unhelpful, I would have thought. In, in a situation yeah, like that. In those circumstances, you know, you'll get the inevitable, oh, privatise the lot and it'll all work out or, you know, make it all public and it'll work out. Well, of course, it's never that simple and it's never either or. The catchment management authority are never going to start making their own computers. And on the other hand, you know, water, well, what is it? It's been put into constitutions now as in effect, a human right, access to drinking water. So the notion that we're just going to toss that over the wall to the private sector is absurd. Mm. So politics, by and large, if it's engaging politically, um, yeah, is pretty much... uh, But I think from politics, we're, we're kind of getting into framing... Just before we get off systems mapping, will we be able to post a, a link to that map? Good uh, yes. If, if we can get a PDF up somewhere that we could yes. um, link to, yes. that would be useful. Yes. Um, yeah. There are many kinds and uses of systems mapping. I wonder, is, are there any other that you can particularly think of? Or is, is systems mapping really just any kind of visualization? No, I mean, it, systems mapping may sound like an incredibly complicated term what you're trying to do is to map draw on a diagram with a pen or whatever you want how the system works and this will vary from a situation of concern to a situation of concern for example one of the ways of looking 
at a situation is to use what's called um, the Borden worldview of epistemic perspectives. So the ontology, the epistemology and the axiology. So the epistemology in the sense of knowledge, the ontology in the sense of how things are grouped and the axiology, and this is where the really interesting one came in terms of values, the epistemology, you know, whose knowledge counts and what knowledge is actually running there. Um, I think what Borden was particularly shrewd about laying out was the polarity of values between people who are living a sort of essentially as citizens in a non commercial way that they're mainly interested in in their community action and the people who have an interest in terms of having a commercial interest on some level or an administrative interest yeah so between you know on the one hand communitarianism and on the other hand libertarianism yes and yeah and what they found in this particular library was that on the one hand you've got the local government folks there who are you know efficiency the relationship with the customer, the library user, is transactional and arm's length in order to cut costs. So that's sort of right down the, at the libertarian end. At the other end, the communitarian end, you've got people who still need and want relational services that are personal and local. Hmm. The consequence- Meaning, I go down to the library, I meet Sue and Jim who work at the desks and we have a chat. And we uh, kind of, over time, become friendly. And they have lots of local knowledge about uh, books and what might interest you, and they get to know you. And it's a relaxed experience, which by and large is better for learning. And it just feels good, as distinct from, oh, this is like a petrol station where you go in and you pay your money and you get your book, as it were. Mm. And... The consequence of these two different sets of values running was that the staff in the middle of the library are stretched on on a worldview rack, as it's called. Well, this is particularly genius, that model, is to show the predicament of those people that, that are stretched, because I think mm. things are fairly obvious for the people at either end. Yeah, and, and so many staff in public services will have this experience where on the other hand, they're being pressurized and managed and performance metric to be efficient. And on the other hand, they're trying to relate to people who want relating to and want understanding. So you can't run a community library on that basis. So that was a fairly fundamental part of the mapping in this case to understand there's a thing called a rich picture which is an interesting way of looking at something a rich picture is no more than drawing on a large piece of paper what is going on in that particular set of circumstances so if we can just draw a picture of the library we can draw a picture of the town hall we can draw a picture of the library books uh, coming in we can and so on, the flows of money. And but I suppose an interesting part of this from the, you know, we're talking about systems thinking in practice or STIP yeah. as a means of effectively bringing about beneficial change. Yeah. And a big part of STIP is the human side of it, the fact that people have to try and muddle through with these things. Yeah. 
And of course, it's incredibly important for people to, because, you know, our brains are highly adapted to visual representation. Mm. And for that reason, in a sort of an arena of complex communication like this, being able to draw out visual representations that kind of make sense in a simple way or in a complex way, like a map where you can sort of follow it down various paths, is still going to be extremely beneficial in the context of that communication. Yeah, so, so picking up on two points there, which are fundamental to step one is, you know, how do you engage with humans, the stakeholders, and the processes of facilitation, which are tremendously important, and the techniques of facilitation, and the way in which you create, if you like, a neutral space. I was going to say, it reminds me a bit of, of peace processes in various parts of the uh, world. Uh, it, it, and it, it, the opposing world views being sort of reconciled, for example, in, in Borden's model. Or another thing that on, on the Shepton Mallet uh, front that you might like to talk about is the slim heuristic, this graph that sort of showed how things might develop over time. And it seemed to plot social knowledge on the one axis against praxis progression on the other. You know, you have a, a first state where perhaps social knowledge and praxis progression are at a minimum. Then over time, as people work their way into making this thing, in this case a library, work, both the social knowledge increase and the praxis, the theory-informed praxis, people are gaining greater understandings of how to get things working better so that you have a virtuous circle of, of ever-increasing praxis. And indeed, in Shepson Mallet, they concluded that the slim heuristic was particularly effective in focusing attention on stakeholding institutions and facilitation, you know, in terms of the value of those things. Yeah. On the one hand, you've got to acknowledge, for example, if you take the stakeholders, well, a big stakeholder is Somerset County Council, which has kicked this whole thing off. Commendably, they accepted that rather than just close it, which a lot of councils would do, they accepted that if the community could come up with a new model that worked financially for them, then that would be fine. And principally, that's where you've got the politics. And But then you've got the town council, six parish council, friends of Shepton Mallet Library and so on. And indeed, Michael Evis, who some people will know, runs Glastonbury Festival. He was a local stakeholder, in effect. So you're creating an environment where people can talk rather than people yapping at each other. And, and oh, well, you'll remember the famous parish council video of, of um, sort of mutual abuse. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah, I wonder if it would be fun to dig that out for the show notes as well. That was, yeah. uh, that was pretty, I mean, it was kind of awful, but it was pretty... I, th- pretty I mean, Dean, I, th- I think that was in Somerset as well. So it's just hideous, you know. This is not that. This is a place where interests can be expressed and my interest may be different to your interest we're talking about successful framing being able to frame the situation of concern in a way that is palatable to all parties yeah that's the thing that reminds me of a a peace process that you, you have these opposing worldviews you've got this situation which isn't progressing in a way that's working for anyone as in the library closes but everybody has an interest in something working and they find through a reframing, they find a common ground. Yeah. And part of the reframing, 
of the 34 libraries in Somerset County Council, 15 were to become volunteer-run community library partnerships. But actually, in Shepton Mallet, they went further than that because going through this process of the rich pictures, considering what it might be, actually, most people voted for it becoming a community hub. So if you like, we're extending the role, we're extending the boundary of what this thing is. Uh, and actually, in many respects, that was crucial to it becoming a success because suddenly you've got more than just people locally who want to get a book out. There are people who want to use it for play groups and... Uh, or that they're lonely and they want to go and meet, you know, it, a place it, to meet A meeting place. Um, you could see that it could actually become a really good place. You know, if you go back to Froome and the way in which the compassionate communities work that was done there and the reduction in hospital administration. Right, it, which was all down to social interaction Social engagement yeah. was the, the sort of key signifier yeah. of, of good health. And not just to signify, but if you want to improve health, reduce health costs, then community engagement is the way to do it. You know, we've talked about the problem and whose problem it is and what realities people are dealing with. But I think a particular interest of systems thinking is in this question of what you might call a solution because you've talked about solutions landscapes just as we've talked about with regards to decisions um and this syndrome of of government doling out a decision and then running away without really seeing how it works Mm. you've framed this uh as designing for action or at least ray eisen has framed it Mm. as designing for action you actually have an intention to see something through and make sure it works yeah so do you want to talk about solutions landscapes first? Yeah, so so often, you know, what happens is someone comes up and like, here's a problem, right? Here's an answer, right? You know, do you agree with this answer or not? Well, you don't. Well, you're going to get it whether you like it or not. Solutions landscapes are saying, if we take this particular situation of concern, I mean, homelessness in Vancouver was a good example. What solutions are available? What solutions could work? Let's look at these and test a few of them out and maybe try a few of them out. One of the answers there was that there's a huge number of voluntary organisations involved in doling out separate bits to the homeless. And, you know, you almost, as a homeless person, had to go around to get a blanket, to get some food, to get some medicines, to get some emotional help, you know, da da da. Well, could could we cohere and bring those together? Because there was plenty of money going into that place. Mm. Another one then said, well, actually, if we look at the people who are homeless, most of them, nearly all of them, come from broken families. So, okay, their families, unfortunately, have been broken. But to what extent can we mend those or improve them? And particularly, to what extent can we have some influence on less families getting broken and therefore Mm. less homeless people? And presumably that's about the sort of critical not to three early years of parenting. Yeah, very much so. And another solution there was in terms of governance. Where is the focus of governance? How is this thing governed? Mm. And I think at that point, I'll come back to Shepton Mallet, because the the governance organisation there is a thing called Seven Starlings CIC. A CIC is a community interest company. 
Um, so this is civil society at work. So, sorry, Seven Starlings Community Interest Company is, is... Yeah, is the governance instrument. And it's based on... It's called Starlings because in a murmuration, you know, one of, one of those Starlings form these extraordinary patterns in the sky of tens of thousands. Mm. There is no leader. <laughs> okay, so it's like a round table, as it were. Each starling monitors the movement of the seven starlings around them and moves in synchronization with those. And so you get this extraordinary thing with no leader. It's highly responsive to change, particularly predators. And this was the theory in relation to the governance instrument. They thrive through diversity of histories, skills and networks. So actually, the fact that we're all different in a way is rather handy because it brings all sorts of different perspectives to the table. And as you say, has led to the extending of the boundary of what the situation is because it's no longer just about people learning from books. It's about community interaction yeah, and, and all the richness, all the rich benefits that come with that. Yeah, exactly. One thing that you've talked about and they've talked about is this question of taking a design turn. It'd be good to be precise about what taking a design turn means? Again, it, I mean, it may sound like a complicated term, but it's not. You could look at it as sort of out-of-the-box thinking or, mm. well, De- Edward de Bono died the other week and, you know, his, his different hats. So you, you're trying to get a fresh perspective. And, I mean, mm. for example, one of the designs... So it's really bringing design to the equation at all is actually it, what we're talking about. Yeah, rather than it being the fairly random consequences of of a whole series of actions stemming, in this case, from government, austerity, the behaviour of the Treasury, top-down edicts, uh, local politics, national politics, the particular interaction of who does and doesn't like each other in the offices and the members on the council, etc., etc. It's sort of standing back and saying, look, Let's design this thing. <laughs> Let's actually, rather than throwing up the house, you know, and we'll all sort of pile in and do a bit and clamber around. And so the designing is really, is, is in fact, the system's thinking in practice. It's bringing, bringing the, the process of thinking this whole thing through carefully and deliberately and inclusively yeah. in a way that everyone's sort of moving in concert towards an eventual outcome that fulfills the designs of all the the various people involved. Yeah, there is hanging on the end of this political power, which notionally resides with people. But what they found at Shepton Mallet was that STIP was hugely helpful in people understanding where they were in their situation and working to address the worldview rack which then led them to the point that a holistic, contextual, communitarian practice, to go back Mm. to Melton, is challenging but possible. Um, And the design turn helped shape the civil society organisation, the Seven Starling CIC, that would then be able to facilitate future adaptability. So these these were good sort of onward outcomes that, that would then serve those communities... Yeah, and for, for other things, which I think just to, to cut in there, there, there was a, a, an interesting piece in the MIT Technology Review some time ago, 
about a group of people who had come together to plan around uh, the prospect of tidal waves in, on the Pacific coast in North America, quite remote communities. But in doing so, they created very useful systems for dealing with the pandemic when it came around. Yeah. They all sort of already had a role. They already knew each other. They all knew who would be doing what and how things would be set up. Exactly. And, and I mean, that's a very significant and important outcome of any form of step-based community engagement. Well, first of all, you set up a community organisation. The next time a problem comes along, as you say, I mean, what might it be in Chapter Mallet? I don't know, the, the doctor's surgery, well, mm. flooding, you know, whatever. But already people are versed, people are practised in how to deal with Another situation of concern. Just and- before we close up, um, I was thinking we, we just have time to talk about how an individual might engage STIP. And you've mentioned Lisa Hudson to me before and her work, and she seems to have essentially engaged STIP without realising that that was what she was doing. Do you want to just give a brief overview of that? Because I'm hoping that we'll get a chance to interview her at some point. Yeah, time. no, I mean, this is very interesting. I mean, it's another example, you know, if you, if you oh, step, you know, it's terribly complicated. Actually, you know, the chances are that if you're a thinking person and an aware person and, and a person whose head isn't stuffed full of, I don't know, fixtures and prejudices, you will have some systemic sensibility and you just get on and do it. So here is art therapy she was employed to do by a mental health charity. She found that if she just sort of followed the usual practice, then, okay, they went through it, but there wasn't any fundamental change. She, I mean, say the usual practice, you're talking about her clients, as it were, coming in for a session and then disappearing. Over a period of weeks, several sessions of doing art and so on. She found that actually if she took a harder line and a firmer line and was pushier, as it were, with the with them, that actually, although some of them would fall by the wayside, in practice, three out of ten of them went from a situation where one, for example, hadn't left her house for a year. She'd become agoraphobic. She was in decline. She went on to this art therapy programme she got more and more interested in art. She became so engaged in art that she's now on a course at the local university in mm. art. I mean, yes, important she's on a course, so she's got a purpose and she's motivated, but now she's out and about. And she's, you know, rather than someone having to do her shopping for her, she's doing her own shopping. She's enjoying the company of people. And you can see this person potentially flowering in this environment. I mean, Lisa had to ignore many of the sort of bureaucratic rules that were laid down by the various public institutions as to how you shouldn't shouldn't go about this and just got on and did what she thought was necessary. But that's a process with an individual. I mean, just quickly, the colleague at the OU had run a course. It's called PQR. I don't know quite why, but look at a situation like this. What why, how. So Mm. what is it you're trying to do? Why are you trying to do it? And how are you going to do it? So he'd gone through all of this. And then it turned out that someone had been on the course was having relationship 
problems at home. So they sat down and they did a what, why, how. What do we want to do in terms mm. of this relationship? Why do we want to do it? And how are we going to go about it? You know, these tools, these concepts, these practices are there all around us mm. uh, for you. And accessible. And accessible. Okay, let's get on to principle number 20. We're on to this 20th principle out of 26. My word. So this feels like progress. This one's called technocratic democracy. Government designs for action shall be disciplined through their vetting. Brilliant. Look forward to it. Thanks, Ed. Great. Thanks, Philip. See you next week.